Thanks again for coming. Uh, one of the things that you'll notice about grace and peace is, is that each week we gather to study God's word. We believe that the Bible is the word of God and it brings truth and life. And so every week we read it, we meditate on it, and we hear from it. So open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 10. We are continuing a study of Jesus' teaching on missions and evangelism that we're calling the harvest. We, we spent quite a bit of time studying Jesus' miracles in Matthew 8 and 9. And then when you get to 10, he looks to the crowd and he sees that they're helpless and harassed like sheep without a shepherd. And so then he calls his disciples to pray that God would send out laborers for the harvest. He says the harvest is ripe, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few, right? And so we began studying these harvest instructions and what you're going to see in the passage this week is that Jesus is going to send them out. He's going to send them out with travel instructions. So this morning, Madeline is going to come up and she is going to do our scripture reading for us before we meditate on this passage. The scripture reading this morning is Matthew 10, 5 through 15 and 38 through 39. These 12, Jesus sent out instructing them. Go nowhere among the Gentiles, and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of the heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You received without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, or two tunics, or sandals, or a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. And whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it, and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you, or listen to your words. Shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly, I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to Thanks God. Be to God. Uh, we can't study God's word without his help, so let's pray that God would help us now. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your word. That it does bring truth and life. And so we pray now as we read it and meditate upon it, that your Holy Spirit would be with us. Would you open our eyes to see both our sin and our need for the gospel and the glorious grace of the gospel that we find here. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, whenever you are uh, going on a mission or when you're on a trip, when you're traveling someplace, details and instructions can be very, very important. I found this out the hard way on the first mission trip I ever took. Uh, it was with my students. We were going to Cuba uh, on a mission trip with a ministry partner that was over there. And... Uh, 
If you've ever traveled to Cuba, you know there are, there are lots of rules. There's lots of details, obviously. Well, imagine taking a mission trip to Cuba. The rules and the details double, if not triple, right? So uh, before, we, before we left on the trip, we met with our ministry partner, and he said, look, there, there, there's just things that you can't do and you can't say whenever you're in Cuba. He said, you know, when you're there, you can't tell them you're on a mission because when they hear the word mission, what do they think? They think military mission. It's like, so you can't call it a mission. You've got to call it a spiritual journey. So that was our group me name for our trip was the spiritual journey to Cuba. And uh, so we called it a spiritual journey. He said, you absolutely 100% cannot talk politics. If you talk politics, you will be arrested immediately. So we had to tight lip, no politics. If anybody asks you anything about politics, you just have to tell them, I know nothing about politics. <laughs> just claim ignorance, right? Uh, he also gave us very specific details about what we could pack and how we could pack it. And he gave us very specific details about our visas, right? So uh, we leave, we go on this trip and you know, it's, it's Sherry and myself and we had one other chaperone with like 12 or so college students. So lots of stress, lots of details, lots of stuff going on. Uh, it's, it's hectic travel. You've got to, we got to, we had to drive to Dallas and then fly from Dallas to Miami, and then fly from Miami to Cuba. So there's a lot going on. Well, we finally get into Cuba after an entire day of traveling. Uh, we go, we, we get all our stuff. We go to the first gate where we've got to present our visas. And we get to the visa person. And I bring all our visas and I hand them to them. And they say, these are not visas. And I said, what do you mean these are not visas? These are our visas. And they said, no, these are copies of visas you must have the real visas. I said, but I don't have the real visas. I have flown here from <laughs> Oklahoma to be here for this trip. And, and you know, they, they can't really understand all this, right? Like, but I'm trying and they're like, no, no visa, no visa. That's what they just keep saying. And I'm like, oh, I don't know. And Sherry's like, I don't know either. So we go back and we sit down with the students and we're like racking our brain. They were like, they, they said these visas won't work. What are we going to do? We're sitting around uh, kind of panicked, right? And then pretty soon, uh, somebody uh, walks up and they said, are you, are you the group from Oklahoma that's here uh, with, uh, you know, uh, this guide? And we said, yes. And they said, I have your visas. And what I have forgotten is when you get to Cuba, they have to, you, you use a copy of your visa and they have to bring an authentic religious visa from Cuba to somebody from there has to hand it to you. And then you can go through the gate with your, with your visa. So we get the real visas we go through the gate, we make it, now we've got to go through the baggage check. Now, uh, on this trip, we were, we were going to, to share the gospel, we were going to do youth ministry, uh, evangelism, and do a, a few other things. Part of the trip, though, is we were also taking stuff over there. We were taking lots of Bibles, because Bibles are very expensive there, so we're buying cheaper Bibles here in the States. We're taking them over there. We're also taking lots of money, thousands and thousands of dollars of money, for that were donated to these churches and uh, they, they can uh, get a better exchange if we have cash than, you know, dealing with the banks and all that kind of stuff. So we're taking thousands of dollars of money. We're also taking cushions for the seats in their chairs. And we've got very specific instructions about how you're supposed to pack all this stuff, right? You can only take a certain amount and you can't pack it all together because if you pack it all together, you get suspicious. So you're supposed to scatter your Bibles all through your bag so it doesn't look like one big hunk of books. So we're going through the customs and our intern, Chris, gets stopped. And why does he get stopped? 
Because Chris forgot that little detail about scattering the Bibles, and he had all the Bibles stacked up together in his duffel bag. And so they stopped Chris to check his bag because they thought he had propaganda against the Cuban government. So they stop him. They pull all his Bibles out. They, he's got like 10 Bibles because I think that was the maximum limit that you could carry. They're flipping through his Bibles, looking for propaganda. Uh, when they don't find anything about Fidel Castro, they, you know, they fail to look for Jesus. But there's nothing about Fidel. So they let us through. And finally, you know, after like a 14-hour day and all these, uh, all these hiccups, we get, we get through the gate. And I'm standing there with our guide. And uh, he, he looks at me and he says, well, how'd it go? And I said, well, I didn't follow the travel instructions. So it was a little bit stressful. So I learned that the travel instructions are very, very important. Right? If you miss the travel instructions, they can derail your mission. This morning, we see Jesus giving his disciples Travel instructions for participating in his mission. He says, look, I'm going to send you out on my mission to bring a harvest of souls into God's kingdom. And here are some very important instructions that I want you to follow. And these instructions are still important for us today if we want to be a part of Jesus' mission, if we want to participate with him in his mission. It's important for Christians that want to share the gospel, and it's important for non-Christians who maybe want to understand the gospel and want to come into God's kingdom. So this morning, we're going to look at these travel instructions. And what I want you to see is they're, the, they're both challenging and they're comforting. They're challenging because they require us to sacrifice our comfort for the sake of the Great Commission. But they're comforting because Jesus promises us that whoever loses his life for Jesus' sake will find life. So for all of us here this morning who are willing to sacrifice our comfort for the sake of the kingdom, we are going to find life and we're going to bring others into life with us. So we're going to look at three questions this morning from this passage. Where do we harvest? How do we harvest? And why do we harvest? Kids, I want you to listen for a story about teamwork. Teamwork, okay? The first thing we see in this passage is that Jesus teaches us where to harvest. And you see this in verses 5 and 6. He says, These twelve Jesus sent out, instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles, and enter no town of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now, this might be really confusing for you because we're jumping right into the middle of the story. And so you're probably like, why, why is Jesus telling them not to go to the Gentiles and Samaritans? Who are the Gentiles and the Samaritans? Why is he saying only go to the house of Israel? That seems a little exclusive. That seems a little mean. Why wouldn't he go to the Gentiles and Samaritans as well? Well, you've got to go back to the beginning of the story to understand why Jesus is giving these instructions. God created the world for humankind to be in relationship with him. That was our purpose, was to glorify him and enjoy him. But Adam rebelled, and when Adam rebelled, mankind fell into a state of sin and misery. We were separated from God, and our original purpose was broken. 
But God loved us so much that he wasn't going to leave us in that state. And he began the process of rescuing us. And he started that process with one man and one family named Abraham. And he went to Abraham and said, Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to give you a great family and a great home. And I'm going to be your God. And you're going to, my peop- you're going to be my people. And I'm going to bless you so that you might be a blessing. He gave that promise to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob and to that family. And their job was to uh, keep that covenant relationship. And as they kept that covenant relationship, then God was going to bless them. And they were going to bless the Gentiles and the Samaritans. They were going to bless the world. But because of the sinfulness of their hearts, they didn't keep that covenant. They, they broke their part of the covenant. They wandered away from God. They deviated from their mission. And really, the story of the Old Testament is a story about Israel being unfaithful, even though God is faithful. And Ezekiel, who's one of the prophets that comes thousands of years after Abraham, says that Israel, they are lost sheep. So what does God do to rescue these lost sheep? He sends Jesus, his son, in the flesh to come and rescue them. And that's what we have in the Gospels is this great rescue story of God himself coming in the person of Jesus to rescue God's sheep. And so he comes, and what's interesting when you see the ministry of Jesus is he starts with the Jews. He starts with God's people. Yes, Gentiles, they come in, they're attracted to Jesus, but Jesus really starts his ministry with the Jews. And he tells his disciples to minister here to the Jews. Why? Because he wanted to show that even though the Jews were unfaithful, God was faithful. And that was a testimony both to the Jews and to the Gentiles of God's great faithfulness. And so he has his disciples share this good news with the Israel. And then later on in the book of Matthew, he says, look, I want you to go out and I want you to share this gospel with all the nations, with everyone. And then we see in the book of Acts, where, where the, the, you know, after Jesus' resurrection, the disciples are going out, and guess who they're, what they do? They start in Jerusalem, and they go Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. And then when the apostle Paul talks about the gospel going out, he says it's going to start with the Jew, and then it's going to go to the Gentiles. So right here, we have a provisional statement where Jesus is just saying, just go to Israel now. But later on, what we see is that the gospel is for everyone and that God is gathering lost sheep from all nations. So how does that apply to us today? Well, we get to look for lost sheep wherever we live, work, and play. We get to look for lost sheep wherever we live, work, and play. God's mission field, the place where God is sending us out, is wherever we live, work, or play. You don't have to go to Cuba to go on a mission trip, although you can, and I would recommend it because it was eye-opening. But you can go right into your living room. And right in your living room, you're going to find family members that need the good news of Jesus. You can go to your neighbor, and and there in your neighbor's house, you might find a helpless and harassed sheep that needs to hear the good news of Jesus. 
You can go to your community center. You can go anywhere in Tulsa, uh, anywhere in your community where you have friends and family members, and right there, you're going to find people who need to hear the good news of Jesus. You may not even need to leave this room. There's probably uh, people here who have been helped, have been hurt and harassed by the sin and suffering in this world that need to hear the good news of the gospel. We go wherever we live. We go wherever we work. <laughs> you're, 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 a lot of us are going to spend uh, as much or more time at work as we will at home on a day-to-day basis. Or students, you may spend more time in class. You should spend more time in class. <laughs> or studying for class, right? Right there uh, in class is an opportunity to share the gospel with people. Right there at your cubicle at work is an opportunity to look on someone with compassion and love and grace. Right there, whether you're in the the oil field or you're in the dentist office or you're in your own office uh, because you're a boss, there's an opportunity there for you to minister the gospel to someone who needs it. And then we can go wherever we play, right? It can be uh, at the gym. It can be on the ball field. It could be uh, on the track. It could be at the theater. It could be uh, in the art studio, in the dance studio. Wherever you go, there is a mission field of people who need to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. And Jesus sends us out wherever we go to share that message. Um, uh, There's a book that I recently read called Church in a Blues Bar. It's by a pastor named Al Dayhoff, and Al was a church planner, a, a, you know, by probably what we would consider a successful pastor. He spent 20 years building up his church. He, he built up his congregation. They bought a building. It seemed like on the surface that he had it all, but, but Al was dry, and he was tired, and he was burning out in the ministry, and so he needed, uh, he needed a place to go and rest and just kind of get away from being a pastor, and he loved the blues music. And so he, he noticed that there was a blues bar uh, not far from his church. And so on Sunday evenings, he began going to the blues bar and listening to music. Now, uh, Al stood out like a sore thumb at the blues bar because he didn't know anyone. And he ordered iced tea with lemon every week whenever he went there. So immediately that was the tip that there was something different about Al. And so right away, the waitress pegged him as a pastor. And she said, what do you, what do, you do anyways? Why are you coming here ordering tea and lemon. He said, what do you do? And he said, well, I'm a pastor. She goes, oh, you're a priest. Hey, everybody, this is priest Al. He's the priest. And so Al became the pastor of that blues bar. He kept coming back week after week, month after month. And as he had conversations there with the people at the blues bar, they began opening up to them, to him. Some of them were very antagonistic towards Christianity. They had some very aggressive things to say. Uh, They assume some very bad things about Al and his theology and his motives. But over time, Al began to develop their trust, and he began to develop a ministry with these people in this blues bar. And he actually began a church there in the blues bar that saw many of those people come to Christ. Let me ask you, where is your blues bar? Where is the place where you can go to find the lost sheep that need to hear the message of Jesus Christ. God is sending us there. He, and he, and he, when he sends us, he gives us instructions. He tells us how to participate in this harvest, 
Uh, there's a long section here of instructions, and I want to summarize all these by saying this, that in all these instructions, Jesus requires us to sacrifice our comfort for his mission. He requires us to sacrifice our comfort for his mission. Uh, just look what he says here in verse 6. He says, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And here we see him calling us to sacrifice the comfort of our homes to go, to go on mission. Uh, now, Sherry and I were talking about the sermon uh, two weeks ago where we talked about praying for missionaries. And she said, you know, you really let us off easy. And she said, Jesus doesn't just call us to pray for missionaries. He actually sends us out as missionaries as well. I said, you know, what all good husbands should say, you know, you're right, sweetie. So you can thank her for this. When Jesus sends out the 12, and then Luke describes Jesus sending out, sends out the 72, what most scholars say is what he is doing is he, is he is signifying that God is sending out all of his church to be missions, to be missionaries and evangelists. Yes, there will be full-time vocational missionaries, and there will be people who are especially gifted at evangelism. But, it's not, but, but missions and evangelism are not just for the professionals. They're for everybody. God has called us all to go out and share the love of Jesus Christ with others. Now, it doesn't mean that we're all going to be Billy Graham. But it means that we can all have a part to play in bringing the gospel to bear in someone else's life. And so he calls us out of our comfort zones. He calls us to go. He calls us to sacrifice the safety and security of our home to go seek and save the lost. And then in verse 7, he says, And proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, this is very similar to the message that Jesus shared. Jesus said, Matthew tells us earlier, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And now he's telling his disciples, Say, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so what he's calling us to do is he's calling us to sacrifice our comfortable conversations for kingdom conversations. He's calling us to sacrifice our comfortable conversations for kingdom conversations. Uh, there's three types of conversations, okay? I'm a pastor. I have to talk to people for a living, so I know these three types. There's news, sports, and weather conversations, and I love those. And then there's uh, uh, taking care of business conversations. I love those too, right? So you've got people who love to talk news, sports, and weather. You've got people who love to take care of business. But there's a third kind of conversation, and this is where it gets a little uncomfortable, and we call these abiding conversations. Abiding conversations is where you begin to look each other in the eye and share your heart. And you begin to talk about the deeper things of life and the more important things of life. People tend to gravitate towards one of those three types of conversations. What Jesus is calling us to do is to, at some point, get into those abiding conversations where we begin to ask people the deeper, more challenging questions of life so that they begin to evaluate who they are and where they stand with Jesus. And in Al, in his book, he says, he encourages us to have conversations where we're asking people questions like, what, where do you believe the world came from? What created this world? What do you believe about God? What do you believe about Jesus Christ? What, what do you believe will happen after we die? 
And if you could ask God one question, what would you ask him? And then he says, shut up and listen. Because as Christians, we're too quick to ask questions so we can reply. We need to ask questions so that we can listen. And it's in the midst of those conversations that people begin to open up and we can share the gospel with them. Maybe you're here this morning and those are questions that you're wrestling with. And I might ask you now what to think about. What, what do you believe about where the world came from? What do you believe about God and Jesus and the afterlife? And if you could ask God one question, what would you ask him? Maybe if you came with a friend, you could discuss that with him in an abiding conversation at McAllister's afterwards. He calls us to sacrifice comfortable conversations for kingdom conversations. And then he calls us to sacrifice our com- the comfort of our indifference for compassion. Verse 8, he says, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse leopards, cast out demons. This, these are the same things that we see Jesus do. He's, being, he's showing, he's doing acts of compassion. It is, friends, it is so easy for us because our lives are so comfortable and they're so put together and we've been blessed with so many material things to just sort of live in an indifference towards people who are hurting. But Jesus calls us to acts of compassion. He calls us to love people in word and deed. Look, he tells them both, proclaim the kingdom is at hand, proclaim the gospel, but also heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons, Word and deed, proclamation and compassion. And this is a challenge. This is a challenge to me. I'll confess, uh, we had a, uh, a ministry event with, with John Most of City of Hope uh, months ago where John, John holds a foot washing and he invites homeless people to come to this event so that he can give them material needs, so that he can connect with them, and so that he could wash their feet. And as I watched people wash the feet of these homeless people, I just couldn't bring myself to do it. Like, I I stood there and thought, I I should want to do that. Jesus calls me to do that. I I can do that. I, I love these people that are doing it, but I can't do it. In that moment, I was worshiping my own comfort rather than sacrificing it for the good of someone else. And what Jesus is calling us is he's calling us to wash the feet of his disciples and to wash the feet of lost sheep who need him. And it's in that act of compassion that we show the world that Jesus has washed our feet as well. So he calls us to sacrifice indifference for compassion. He calls us to sacrifice Material, the, the comfort of material goods to give generously and simply, right? He says, you receive without paying, give without pay. He says, acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, no two tunics or sandals or staff for the laborer deserves his food, okay? What is he saying? Is he saying that we have to go out uh, and we can't take anything for ministry? We have to go out and minister naked? Um, I don't think so. Right? That's not the application. You see in, in other spots where this passage is, in Mark, Jesus actually tells them, he says, take a sandal, take sandals, take a staff. Well, here it says, take no sandals, take no tunics. What most commentators agree is that the word take here uh, 
is, is, is tricky in terms of translation. It could be take as in taking something with you. It also could be take as in obtaining something extra. And so what most people think is what Jesus is saying is don't take anything extra. The, the message is urgent. The ministry is urgent. It needs to go out. And when you go out, do it simply. Don't be gaudy. Don't go out and do your ministry uh, so that everybody can see how good you look and how flashy you are and how uh, well-respected and put together you are. He's saying, don't let your outward appearance be the thing that is drawing people in. Let it be your character, your compassion, and your message. He's telling us to, to minister simply, but he's also telling us to minister generously. Right? You know, he tells them, you need to go. The, the worker is worth his wage. And you need to find uh, a, someone who is worthy there that you can partner with that's going to help you. And so for vocational ministries, for vocational missionaries and evangelists, we do need to give money. <laughs> that is the way that they can minister, uh, be free to minister, be free to focus their efforts on that. Uh, you see this in the Apostle Paul. There were times whenever he took money, uh, he accepted money from churches for his mission. And there were other times when he said, I don't want to burden you, uh, so I'm not going to take money. I'm going to set up a tent ministry. I'm going to make my own money so I can minister to you without any burden. So we're free. We're free to, to arrange our ministry the best way possible. But he's calling us to give generously, to sacrifice our goods. He's calling us to partner with others. He says, uh, whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. And so we have to sacrifice independence for community. We cannot do missions and evangelism alone. You cannot grow in Christ alone. We need community. Uh, I came across a story this week that I, that I thought illustrated this well. Um, many, many of you probably heard of Roger Bannister. Roger Bannister was the first person to break the four-minute mile. And in my mind, I always imagined Ron, Roger Bannister out there, like training by himself, like Rocky, and running laps all the time, and just doing the whole thing by himself. But that's actually not how he did it. He had training partners that trained with him all the time. And then on the day, whenever he finally broke the four-minute mile, he had one buddy that started the race with him and ran the first 800 with him to help him keep up his pace. And then he had another buddy that at the, at the 800 meter mark, then he started and he ran as fast as he could to help him keep up his pace. And it was only at the end when Roger Bannister pressed on ahead and broke the four minute mile, but he couldn't have done it without the other people running with him. We can't do missions and evangelism without a team, without other people running alongside us. You can't grow spiritually without a team, without a community of believers around you, encouraging you, sharpening you, training you, discipling you, holding you accountable. So we call, and, and that's a huge stumbling block for us because we want to do things independently. But Jesus calls the sacrifice, that independence for community. And the last thing we see is he calls the sacrifice comfort the comfort of our reputation for rejection. Look at verses 14 and 15. He says, And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. 
Here's the challenge. Here's the reality, right? Is that when we go out and we share this message, uh, not everyone is going to receive it. Not every sheep that is lost uh, knows they're lost and wants to come into the kingdom. And and not every uh, person out there who hears the gospel is going to receive it. They are going to reject us because they're going to reject Jesus. And we'll look at this more in the next few weeks. Um, but I think one of the biggest barriers to evangelism in our, in, our, in our culture, and even in my heart, is just a desire for acceptance and a fear of rejection. If I share the gospel with this person, if I open up, if I share my life with them, if I talk about Jesus, then they're going to reject me. I'm going to get canceled. I'm going to get labeled. I may get fired. And Jesus is saying that we have to be willing to sacrifice our reputation for rejection. And there will be people who reject the gospel. There will be people who reject Jesus. There will also be people who are going to come to Jesus. God is going to use us. Um, and he's going to use us in community. One of the interesting things about here is that in this passage it says, the land of Sodom and Gomorrah. It's going to be uh, more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. It's interesting. He talks about the town, right? He doesn't talk about the individual. Why does he do that? Well, obviously, towns are composed of individuals. And so you have individuals in those towns who are making decisions to reject Jesus. But I think what this challenges us on is we think that we live these individual, independent lives, and that the other people around us do not coerce us into what we believe. But that's just not true. We are going to become like the people that we gather with. And we're going to gather with people who are like us. And so the the presentation of the gospel is an invitation to come into an entirely new community. And Rahab the prostitute is a great example of this. That whenever the, the, the spies came into Sodom and Gomorrah, um, Rahab the prostitute was the only one who was there who believed them, who trusted their message, who knew that they were of, from the God of Israel. And so she was saved and she came out of that community into a new community. If God is calling you to Jesus, he's calling you into a new community, a beautiful community that loves you with grace and truth. So how do we harvest? God uses our sacrifice to bring people into his kingdom. And this is an incredibly important message because what is hurting, um, what, what is causing people to be lost and left behind is this idea that we have to be self-fulfilled, self-authenticated, that we have to live out our true self. And so because of that, we're living for freedom from things, I want to live from religion. I want to live from my family. I want to live away from institutions. I want, to, I want to go on a mountain and figure this whole life thing out on my own. I want to live my own mission, my own way. And because of that idea that freedom is found from other things, we're losing people and we're hurting people. And what we model in the gospel is a life for something a life for others, a life for sacrifice, a life for mission and purpose and glory and love and grace. 
we model the life of Jesus, right? Who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. We model the gospel of grace that says that the word Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us. Friends, when we forsake the comfort of our lives for the message of the gospel and the kingdom, then we are incarnating the gospel, that we're, we're, the gospel is put on flesh and it is in us living and breathing and walking and loving amongst other people. And that's what draws them in. That's what's both challenging and comforting about it is it gives them life and it gives us life as well. It comes with this promise that whoever loses his life for the sake of the gospel will find it. Well, how do we get the strength to do that? Why would we, why would I, why would us, why would we want to go on a, on a journey, on a mission that's so hard, that's so challenging, that's going to require us each and every day to sacrifice our own needs, wants, and desires for the sake of someone else? We do it because that's what Jesus did for us. Verse 8 says, freely we give as freely we have been given. The message of the gospel is a message of the free grace of God. That God himself in the person of Jesus was in heaven, perfectly content, perfectly um, complete and comfortable and safe and secure. And he was willing to leave that comfort to come and bear the sin and misery of this world for us. And he doesn't ask his disciples to do anything that he hasn't already done, right? He left his home to seek and save the lost. He was willing to come and minister simply, plainly. It said he was without form or majesty. He wasn't beautiful and bold. He came poor. He lived off the generosity of others. He came, um, he came to people who would reject him. He came to love people who would betray him, hurt him, crucify him, convict him. He sacrificed all of that. Why? Because that's what it took to rescue him. He, he sacrificed that because whenever we pursue comfort in this world, we are putting our uh, material things above God. We're worshiping the creation instead of the creator. And the punishment for worshiping the creation instead of the creator is death. But Jesus gave himself for us. He paid the debt that we deserved. He lived the life that we should have lived. He died the death that we should have died. And he rose from the grave to rescue us from the sin and misery of this world. That is the free grace of the gospel. And that is the message that he offers all of us today. He gave his life freely so that we might receive freely. And whoever loses his life for the sake of that gospel will find true life. And whoever loses his life for the sake of others will find true life. That's where true life is found. It's not found in freedom from everything. If you were, if you were trying to find love and joy and peace and happiness uh, by pushing everything in this world away, by pushing away friends, family members, and God, you're not going to find it. You're going to end up lonely and alone and isolated. 
You're only going to find true life living for the God who created you and longs to be in a relationship with you. And it's our, that's what we experience as Christians, and that's what we give. Go back to my mission trip example. When we went on that trip, we were given books and Bibles and thousands and thousands of dollars to take over for these people. Imagine if we got to the other side. Imagine we got to Cuba, and we said, you know what? I'm just going to hold on to all this. Well, I know, I know we brought all this stuff, you know, but we're just going to keep it for ourselves. That's not the purpose of the mission. Church, that's not the purpose of the mission. The, the purpose of the mission is not for us to get grace so that we can live happy, healthy, and wealthy. The purpose is for us to receive grace so we can live in an intimate relationship with God and so we can give it away. Freely we have given And freely we give away. And as we give away freely, we are going to model true life for others. And we're going to bring them into it. I want to close with one one story that's really encouraged me. Uh, I read a story recently about a pastor who had a brother. And the the pastor followed, both of them grew up in the same home. The home was very legalistic. And the the pastor followed a very traditional, uh, he, he, he rejected he rejected the faith of his own, but he did it in a very religious, moralistic way. In the parable of prodigal son, he would have been the older brother. That even though he rejected his parents' religion, he went and did off, off and did all the good things. Well, his brother rejected that faith in a different way. He, he rejected that, that religious faith and went off in a different direction. And he, uh, he left for college and he, became, he pursued a life of, of sexual morality and he actually became gay. Well, this pastor ended up getting converted, believing the gospel, coming to true faith and repentance in Jesus Christ. And later on in his life, when his brother came out of the closet, he was faithful to the decision, how am I going to, to, to hold to biblical gr- truth with conviction and also love my brother? And so he and his wife and his kids worked really hard to love his brother, even though they disagreed with him, without compromising their beliefs. Well, later on, his brother got AIDS, and his brother was on his deathbed. And when his brother was on his deathbed, everyone in the gay community abandoned him. But two pastors from local churches came and visited him every single day. And then this pastor and his wife, they came and they shared the gospel of grace with him on his deathbed. They modeled that grace and truth that we see in Jesus. And he repented. He believed the gospel and he gave his life to Christ. And then he gave all of his his wealth, all of his inheritance, everything he had left, he gave it to the pastors of those churches that came and visited him. And I just love that eventually he did pass away. But I just love the faithful presence of that minister in the life of his brother, someone that he, he very much disagreed with, but someone he very much loved. And, and church, I think if we can demonstrate that grace and truth, word and deed, and cultivate a faithful presence where we live, work, and play, we are going to see more and more people experience the life-changing gospel of Jesus. And we are going to experience more and more of the life-changing gospel of Jesus. So let's pray that God would do that in our hearts today.